Well, good morning. Uh, once again, it's great to see everyone. Uh, my name is David. Um, people call me both David and DC, and so you guys can feel free, uh, which one, uh, whichever one you're more comfortable with. But uh, it's always a joy to worship uh, with our church family. Uh, you know, I've been living in L.A. for about uh, 10 years now total, and I still don't know my way around uh, L.A. Uh, I have to always have my phone with me and my GPS with me. Uh, and there are so many different navigation apps now. Uh, but I use and I prefer Waze. Right? I don't know whoever else uses Waze. But uh, there's a special thing that you can do on Waze. You go to the setting and there are a bunch of ways to customize your commute. Right? Uh, there are a bunch of selections. Like you can avoid the toll roads. You can avoid the HOV lanes. You can avoid actually difficult intersections. I don't know how they determine that. But you can avoid that. Uh, and you can select, like, the quickest route to get to your destination because driving in L.A., it's, it sucks because there's just traffic everywhere. And so my objective whenever I drive is I want to get from point A to point B as quick as possible with the least amount of traffic, right? And every once in a while, my ways will alert me of an alternative route that will save me three minutes, right? Yes, every time I'll select that. If I can save any amount of time in my driving, that's what I want to do. Uh, get me to my destination as quick as possible with the least amount of resistance. Right? This attitude is often reflected in other areas of our lives, right? Our health, academics, our careers, and even relationships. Right? If I can accomplish my goal in less time with less hurdles, why not? Right? And so that's why we have always new diets, right? New workouts, Right? New grad programs, coding boot camp, so that you can get to your intended goal as quick as possible. Right? Dating apps. Dating has changed. Um, you just need to download something. You can, you know, swipe through people and meet people through your phone. Um, and, and this is the world that we live in. And I'm not saying these are necessarily bad things, um, but it's a reflection of the desire that we have for immediate results, right, instant gratification. Uh, this will become a problem, however, if we try to apply this principle uh, to our Christian journey. Because God's plan and itinerary looks very different uh, than ours, right? And we'll see this truth very clearly in our passage, right? We'll see this in the Israelites' journey through the, promise, uh, through the wilderness to the promised land. Uh, so last week, we jumped back into our series in Exodus. And where we left off was Israel crossed the Red Sea miraculously. Now they're at the edge of the wilderness, right? The Egyptian army has been defeated. Uh, they are liberated. They are free. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. That is actually phase one of God's redemptive plan. Now they're about to enter into phase two, which is to get to the land that God has promised them. Because that was in the original promise of God to even Abraham. That they would inhabit a land flowing with milk and honey. Rich with resources. Where they can be free right, from slavery. But also they can be free to be God's people. So I, I want to show you a map. The quickest route to the promised land should have taken 13 days. So if you look at the top left, there's Egypt. Top right is Canaan. A straight line there. Uh, by walking, should have taken 13 days. Now, what we'll discover throughout the series is that it actually took 40 years to get them there. 
40 years. Now, I know it's hard to see, but the route goes from down to Mount Sinai, back up, and they circle around a bunch of times, and then they finally arrive to the promised land. Instead of avoiding all the difficult roadblocks, right, that would delay them getting to their destination, God deliberately chooses a path that would take longer. Now, we have to pause and think about that for a second. Because here's a difficult, uh, difficult truth to swallow. You may be dead center in God's will, but yet find yourself in the wilderness. Let me say that one more time. You may be dead center in God's will for your life and wind up in the wilderness. There was something more valuable to God than getting his people simply to a destination. And we'll discover what that is. The wilderness is a very difficult place to be. It's where pain is, suffering, loneliness, extended periods of waiting and wandering. But there is a reason and purpose for that. See, the wilderness was a part of God's redemptive plan for his people. And it is also true for us. Although we want to avoid it, God wants to lead us through it. Because there are certain truths we won't learn if not for the wilderness. So due to the length of our our passage, as you guys see, we're not going to read the entire two chapters word for word. We're going to look at sections of it as we unpack and walk with God and the Israelites. In the early going of Israel's journey through the wilderness, they encounter three major obstacles. And in these challenges, we'll see the reason why God led them there. Right? Three common elements we see in the wilderness. First is we're going to see pain. Secondly, we're going to see provision. And lastly, we're going to see preparation. Right? So pain, provision, and preparation. The wilderness is a place of pain. You know, one of the best ways to get to know someone for who they really are is actually by traveling with them. Traveling with them. There are things you cannot learn from Facebook posts or Insta story that you will learn about if you go on a road trip or a mission trip with someone. I spend time with someone in a developing country with 100% humidity, 90 degree weather. You will learn things about that person that their parents don't even know. Why? Because it's just so uncomfortable. And, And difficult circumstances has a way of exposing and really revealing who we are. The same could be said about winning and losing. You'll learn a great deal about someone, not when they win, but actually when they lose. So fresh off of a victory that God had for them, right, the Red Sea, now we see Israel in the wilderness in very difficult and harsh environment. The first pain that Israel encounters is a lack of water. The second pain we're going to see is a lack of food. And again, a lack of water. Right? Growing up in the church, we hear the stories of, Israeli, uh, the, stories of Is, uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and it's so easy, right, just to be annoyed at them and so frustrated at them. Right? Why can't they get it? Why won't they learn? Uh, but we have to put ourselves in their situation to be able to fully understand what they're going through. Uh, it was recorded that 600,000 men were freed from slavery in Egypt. 
that's just men. You include women and children, that number jumps easily to a million, million plus. And they have now a long journey ahead of them. And we're told that they travel three days and there's no water. You know, my wife Jane and I, when we drive our three kids to Orange County, right, that's about 30 minutes to about 45 minutes, you know what we do? We make sure we pack enough food and water for that drive. Because my kids are just, just empty pits. They just constantly consume, right? And if there is any hint of just thirst or hunger, they just start complaining in the car. And, and because we can't stand that, I can't stand that as I'm driving. I'm like, Jamie, make sure you pack enough snacks. Make sure to pack enough water bottles. And that's for a 30-minute drive. Hundreds of thousands of women and children are now in the desert. And we're told for three days they're without water. This is no small matter. But they finally reach a place. It's called Marah. And the worst thing about going to Marah is that there's actually water there. Can you, can you imagine traveling for three days without water and then you finally see water? They get there and they realize the water is undrinkable. It's too bitter. You can't drink it. And that's where we get the complaint. Exodus 15 verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Fast forward, it's 15 days, uh, the 15th day of the second month since leaving Egypt. Now they are hungry for food. Hungry for food. And they start to complain once again. Exodus 16, verses 2 to 3. And the whole congregation of the people, people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They were hungry. And so once again, they start grumbling and complaining. Now after moving from the wilderness of sin where they encountered this great hunger, God led them to Rephidim where they had no water once again. And let's look at their complaint again. Verse 17, verse 3. I mean, chapter 17, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Disappointment after disappointment. Frustration after frustration. The people are encountering pain. They're, They're encountering painful situations. But when we look at the narrative and we, when we read every single word of this entire passage, it is crystal clear in God leading them to each place. He is the one leading them to these spots. Right? Of Marah, of the wilderness of sin, and now Rephidim. Why? Why take him to a place of pain? Why not take them to an oasis where there is plenty of fresh water and food to eat? What's going on? What God is wanting to do by taking them to these painful spots is to expose Israel. Through pain, God is exposing Israel's faith. They had just witnessed the amazing power and miracle of God through the ten plagues. Where they got free, right? Not only that, they saw the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire to lead them to the Red Sea. 
And then God parted the sea. They walked through it, and the Egyptian army drowned. They saw all of this, all these amazing miracles of God. And now they come to a place where there's undrinkable water, and what do they do? They don't look to God. They don't cry out to God. They actually grumble against him. They grumble and complain, forgetting all that God has previously done for them. How quickly are yesterday's victories snuffed out by today's pains? Instead of turning to God, they turn against God. Like the Israelites, we too suffer from spiritual amnesia. We get tunnel vision, tunnel vision when we face difficulty, only seeing the pain in front of us and forgetting all that God is and all that he has done for us. See, pain is a revealer of all. It exposes our relationship with God. Do we see him truly as our loving father or do we see him as a cosmic vending machine? See, pain has a way of telling us the truth of our relationship with God. The Israelites, instead of crying out to God, filed a complaint against him. And if you look at the complaints, it, it intensifies. The grumbling intensifies to the point that they were thinking about going back to Egypt, to slavery. And they're also thinking about killing Moses, stoning him to death at Rephidim. Right? This isn't just complaining or grumbling. This is straight-up mutiny, rebellion against God. See, many of us, we are in the middle of the wilderness. Our lives are full of disappointment, frustration, and constant delays. As soon as you think you've made progress, it's just back to square one. It may be that you're, you feel stuck at your job. It may be a mental health issue. You're just going through this depression. Prolonged singleness, a nagging illness, financial hardship. Difficult relationships with your spouse, kids, or a friend. Many of us were right in the middle of the wilderness. And the question is, is how do you respond to pain? Do you look for someone to blame? Do you put God on trial? See, in many ways, we're just like the Israelites. We're just like them. Failing to look at God or look to God in the midst of pain. Brothers and sisters, as God's children, God is actually leading us. He's leading our lives. Everything that happens to us needs to pass through the hands of God before it reaches us. It needs God's divine permission before it gets to us. Everything that doesn't happen in our lives, believe that God is withholding it. Withholding it. Because he has a better plan and purpose. See, everything in our lives is in God's hands. And there is a reason for your pain. C.S. Lewis in the book, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The first thing we see is great pain in the wilderness. But another thing that we see in the wilderness is amazing provision. Right? People ask me, has fatherhood changed the way that you see God and, and read the Bible? And, and the answer is absolutely. It's changed everything about how I understand God and how I understand the gospel. And I'm not saying that you have to be a dad to be able to know these things about God. But it's just changed everything. Especially Israel in the wilderness. See, one thing that drives me completely nuts is complaining. When my kids complain, and I have three kids, they're young. But when they complain, it just drives me insane. Right? Especially on long car rides. Uh, but one thing that I just cannot stand is when they complain about food. When they complain about food, it, it just, I'm, I'm over it. And especially when they compare my food that I cook for them to the food of restaurants. Like that just, it's just infuriating. I just can't stand it. Right? I can't handle it. Right? There's zero tolerance for that. Um, if you spend any time with myself or Jane or if you're in a car ride or if you come over to our house, you're going to hear this, this mantra or this thing that we constantly say to our kids. It's this Korean word, right, this Korean phrase. Stop jing-jinging. Just, just stop jing-jinging over and over again. That means stop complaining, stop grumbling. You know, I probably say it a hundred times in a week because I think my kids have the best life ever. That's my opinion. Right, they're living their best life now. They have everything. And when they complain about food, it just drives me crazy. And you know what I do when they start complaining and comparing my food to other people? Is you're, not, you're not eating. Go to your room. You're not eating tonight. See, the Israelites are literally complaining about food. Literally complaining about food. They're comparing the food that they're eating to the food that they eat in, ate in Egypt. Right? They sat around pots of meat. They ate bread to their full. Right? They're reminiscing about their slavery in front of God who redeemed them from slavery. Right? I would have been so done with Israel at this point. But what do we see God doing? He hears and he responds. Now, we have to really ask the question, were the Israelites really starving were they really that hungry? Because right, the complaint was in the wilderness of sin. But when we get to Rephidim, we hear that they still have livestock. That's milk, cheese, and meat. What else do you need? So where, what, they're really complaining about preference. The food that they ate in Egypt. God still hears them. And he abundantly provides for them. Right? God uses the log. He tells Moses to take a log and put it in the bitter water. And the water became sweet. He rained down quail in the evening and he provided manna in the morning. Every day. And when they get to Rephidim, he tells Moses to strike the rock and there's fresh water that they can drink of. You know, quail, quail was actually common in the desert. For, but for it to rain down every evening was a miracle. Manna was, was an amazing blessing. And then people are trying to figure out what manna was. It doesn't matter what it was. The fact is, every time they woke up in the morning, there was manna for them to eat. And it's described that it was like honey wafers. Every morning for them to eat. 
But in the quail, in the manna, there were conditions. Conditions. There were instructions in how they were to collect and how how they were to eat. They were allowed an omer each. An omer is two liters. So each member of the household gets one omer, right? So you collect it for that day and you discard it for the evening, right? But people still try to keep it overnight. And what happened in the morning is there was maggots and it smelled. The only time that they can collect more and actually save it was on the sixth day. Sixth day. You could collect twice as much uh, manna for yourself. And it would be preserved until the seventh day. Why? Because the seventh day was given for them to rest, to not collect. But what do we see once again? Moses goes out on the seventh day and he sees people looking for manna. Why such detailed instructions and stipulations for these provisions. Why not have the Israelites just go at it? Just go for it. Just go crazy. Why does he do this? The answer is this. He wanted Israel to trust in him. Daily. He wanted to show them that he was with them in the wilderness. See, Israelites, they missed the greatest provision actually in the wilderness, which was his very presence. The Israelites failed to see that. And that's why some hoarded the manna for themselves, kept it overnight. Some went out on the seventh day looking for manna. Because they failed to realize that God was with them each and every day. Exodus chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is this is crazy. They're grumbling and complaining. And what does God ask them to do? Draw near. Draw near to him. Because he heard it. What amazing grace and mercy. God shows up in glory to a people that aren't even looking for him. They don't deserve this. But God in his goodness shows up to remind them, I'm here. In the wilderness with you. See, the provisions of water and food were to demonstrate that He is Lord, He is provider, He is the redeemer, He's the healer, He is the source of every one of your needs. And so God is trying to help Israel to see Him for who He is, because they have no idea who He is at this point. See, Israel witnessed God's redeeming power in Egypt. But now in the wilderness, they'll witness his ongoing care and provision. He's not only their savior, but he's also their sustainer. See, God's care is holistic. It's not just freeing them. He's also feeding them. It's not just redeeming them. He's rebuilding them, restoring them. For many of us, it's easier to trust in God with our eternal destiny than to trust in him for our day-to-day needs. Isn't that true? Yeah, salvation, God, you take care of that. Everything else, 
I got it. See, many of us, we, we have Jesus as our Savior, but very few of us ever experience Jesus as Lord over our lives, as King and ruler of our lives. Because we govern our own lives. We make our own decisions. As if God didn't care or as if he's not even there. So just like the Israelites, many of us, we live as practical atheists. With our lips, we confess that there is a God. But when, you, when anyone looks at our lives, it looks like there isn't a God. Because we do everything the way that we want to do it. See, having God as Lord means trust and obedience daily. And so for Israel, that meant not to collect more than one omer. For, that, for them, it meant not to go out on the seventh day. So that every single day, they will trust and look to God to provide for them. So here's the thing. In order for us to experience God as Lord and King over our lives, we need to obey. There's no other way. Faith grows when we act in obedience. Faith grows at the intersection of our obedience and God's faithfulness. That is when our trust grows and increases. See, my kids, no matter where they are now, they will, they will jump off anything as long as I'm there. They'll jump off anything. Playground, swimming pool, they'll just jump. But it wasn't always like that. My kids are very fearful kids, right? So in, in the early stages, right, when we're at the playground, I'm saying, Deacon, jump. That's Deacon's my, uh, that's his real name. Uh, that's my son. Deacon, jump, right? What does he do? He hesitates. He's not sure. You know what he does? He, he gets down lower, right? And he doesn't jump. He just kind of falls off into my arms. Why? Because he's not sure if I'm going to catch him. But you know what happens over time? He starts to jump. He, he, no matter what height, no matter what depth of the pool, he's going to jump because he's learned over time, dad's going to catch me. He's going to catch me. The same is true for our, our relationship with God. But there needs to be an act of faith in order for the trust to be built. There's no other way. We need to act. What do you have difficulty trusting in God with today? Is it your future? Is it your career? Maybe it's your spouse, your kids? Friendships? Finances? What would it look like for you to trust and obey God in these areas of your lives? Maybe it means that simply it is for you to go to God in prayer, for you to cry out. For others, it may mean that you act in generosity, even though finances are tight. It may mean that you ask for forgiveness or you go to someone and ask to be forgiven. Or to forgive someone. Maybe it means for you to patiently wait, faithfully endure when you're disappointed. And to not take matters into your own hands. See, God desires us to know him as Lord. But that can only happen if we trust and obey. So pain in the wilderness exposed Israel's faith. God's provision was meant to strengthen their faith. 
right, in him. But both pain and provision was all for the sake of preparation. And this brings us to our final point. Preparation in the wilderness. The wilderness was training and preparation for Israel. See, God's goal for Israel wasn't to get them to their destination, but rather to grow their devotion. That was the point of the wilderness. Not the destination, but their devotion to him. See, the wilderness was used to create a greater distance from Egypt, the life in Egypt. And to introduce a new life with God as a redeemed people. The wilderness was a necessary detox. And for this new life that God had in mind, he had to introduce the law. Exodus 15 verses 25 to 26. And he cried out, cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. See, it's important to note here that the introduction of the law was given after redemption. After they were rescued, not before not when they were in chains, because if you give laws to people that are already in chains, it will destroy them. But he gave it to them after they were out of chains. And this is the sovereign grace of God. God rescued his people and then gave them the law to teach them what it means to live as free people. Because the life in Egypt was not the life that he had planned for them. So he gave them the law. See, the wilderness was a test for Israel. Not like an exam where you have to get an A or you have to pass, but a test to refine their faith, to refine their knowledge of God. Because there are greater challenges that are waiting, waiting for them in the wilderness. And even greater challenges when they reach the promised land. So in the land of Canaan, there were, it was filled with mighty warriors that they would have to defeat and conquer. But not only that, in Canaan, there were many gods, false gods and idols that the people worshipped. It was a place filled with temptations all around them. And so God uses the wilderness to refine their faith, to strengthen their understanding of God. Because if Israel struggled to look to God when there was nothing in the wilderness, why would they ever dare look at God when they have everything in the promised land? Why? The desert was a perfect place for them to look to God because there was need. When they reach the promised land, they're going to have everything. Why would they look to God when they have everything? That is why, brothers and sisters, the rich, being wealthy and successful, it's hard for us to experience the grace of God because we don't think we need it. Being in SoCal, being comfortable, having all the food and, and success, it's, 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 it's a challenge to our faith. And that is why God takes us through the wilderness to prepare us for the greater challenges that await. See, without a stronger resolve and a deeper understanding of God's holiness, when they reach Canaan, they're going to compromise. They're not going to be the, the people of blessing that God created them to be. They're going to worship all other gods. See, although a place of pain... God is going to use the wilderness to thread Israel to God. A stronger bond. 
stronger trust. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, this is what he says. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone. And so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. What was it for Israel? It was a latter two. To prevent future, future pains, but also for them to love God ardently for himself. That is why the wilderness was necessary. It's not because they did anything wrong. God is the one who led them there. He wanted to teach them this, to prevent them from future pain and to draw them closer to himself. See, there's so many parallels between Israel's journey and our journey as a church. The Bible describes a Christian life as the one of wandering in the wilderness, sojourners simply passing through, waiting to come to the full reality of God's kingdom, to be face-to-face with Jesus. And our journey through the wilderness will be full of pain and suffering. But here's one thing that is significantly different from Israel's journey and our journey. It's in the provision. We have the greatest provision. Better than sweet water. Better than quail and manna. Better than water from a rock. And that is Jesus Christ himself. There's a wealth of foreshadowing of Christ here in our passage. Jesus, our Redeemer, will drink the bitter waters so that you and I, we can experience sweet waters of salvation. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He gives his body for you and me. And if we partake in it, we will be hungry no more. Jesus is the rock that God struck so that we can have everlasting water, so we will thirst no more. Do you see it? Exodus is a glimpse, only a glimpse to a greater exodus in the Gospels in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem us and free us from a greater enemy, and that is sin. He would ransom his life to purchase us for God. And on that cross, he would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath so that we can be free And we could belong to God as his children. Jesus is the greater Israel who also went into the wilderness, who experienced extreme hunger and thirst and was tempted by Satan, but he won over Satan. He overcame. And Jesus Christ is the better Moses, a greater mediator who sacrificed himself so that we can be reconciled to God. For those of us here who have not experienced the redeeming power of the gospel, God is inviting you to consider Jesus Christ. He's given his life for you. The call is for us to simply receive. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. Acknowledge that you cannot free yourself from your sins. And look to Jesus as your savior and you can experience everlasting life. You can eat the bread of life. You can drink from the the well that that has no limitations. There's satisfaction to be had. So consider Jesus today. To my Christian brothers and sisters who may be wandering the desert, God is testing you. 
He is testing you. But there's comfort in the gospel. Because a test will never break us. It only refine us. And I want to show you something uh, real quick. Anybody know what this is? This is a crucible. This is for uh, fine metals. What you do is you take fine metals and you put it into the crucible. And this crucible then is placed in a fiery furnace with extreme heat. And what happens is all the impurities of these fine metals will, will rise to the surface. And then what you get is a better product. Now, why do I share this with you? Because this, this is a good image for what our test is like. This crucible is Jesus Christ. We are the precious metal. And so, yes, there is tests. There are tests that to come. We will endure and, and experience pain and suffering. But because we are in Christ, these tests will not destroy us, but actually it will refine us. It will complete us more and more to become more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the good news for us who are experiencing the testing of God. Because without the crucible, the metal will be destroyed. But because we are in Christ, there is security, there is comfort. We are adopted. We have nothing to fear. Know that God has a reason for your wilderness. And that is to make us more like Christ. And you've heard it said that God won't give you more than you can handle. Right? To, in a way to try to comfort you. That is actually not accurate. Because that passage is talking about temptation. Not about trials. The fact of the matter is God is actually going to give you more than you can handle. But he will, he'll, what he promises, he won't give you more than what Christ can't handle. Because we are in Christ. Yes, yeah, so life will be painful. We'll be, we'll be taken to the limits. But because we are in Christ, we will not be destroyed, but only refined. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring in the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Pain has a purpose, and it's to prepare us for a greater glory. God is with you in your suffering. God is actually leading you through the wilderness. Right, to discard the lesser things of life and to introduce to greater joys in the gospel. And the promise is that he will lead us home. He will lead us home. God's invitation for all of us is to draw near, to behold, to see that cloud of glory, to see Jesus Christ for who he is. He is our loving father. He is committed to our joy. And he will see it that we finish. Brothers and sisters, let's look to him. Let's draw near to him. Let's cry out as we were meant to in our pain for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond because I know that there are people here who are in the wilderness. You are suffering. There are painful things that you're enduring right now. If that's you and, and all you've done is just look inwardly or failing to look, look to God and to cry out to him. This is an opportunity for you to cry out to God. God, help me. I need you. Sustain me. Provide for me. Cry out to him at this time. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity. Whatever ailments, whatever challenges that are in your life to 
look to Christ and to pray and ask for help. So I want to give you guys just a minute to pray that prayer and I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray. thank you so much for the lessons that you teach us through the Israelites and through the wilderness. God, many of us were in um, in the desert wandering or waiting. There's frustration, there are disappointments. Help us, Lord, to look to you. Help us, Lord, to cry out to you. And God, we, we ask that you would hear and answer our calls. Help us to see that the joy that you offer is is beyond our circumstances, but rather rooted in the truth that Jesus died for us and rose again for us and redeemed us once and for all. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are suffering. God, I ask for your mercy and grace. But I ask that you would also increase their faith and trust in you. Help them to act in obedience, even in the midst of difficulties. God, make us a church that reflects your glory. Make us a church that suffers well. And help us, Lord, to always know you as our loving Father. That there are no accidents. There's no... Nothing that happens to us that you don't allow. So increase our faith in you. We give you all the praise and glories. In Jesus' name we pray.